John chapter 10, let me read verses 30. We'll finish the chapter today through 42, and I've titled it Division and Decision. But it says in 1030, you follow along, I and the Father are one. And the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. Which of them are you going to stone me? For which of them? And the Jews answered, it is not the good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. And if, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came, the scripture cannot be broken. Do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. He said, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, Believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true and many believed in him there. May God bless the reading of his scripture. You know, in the early church, certainly, one of the greatest or biggest theological debates centered on the deity of Jesus Christ. In fact, today, the Muslims say that Jesus was merely a prophet. The Jehovah Witnesses insist that he is not equal to the Father. And so the question that we pose this morning for you is, is Jesus God? In fact, that is, I believe, the great question of John's gospel. In fact, there are even some today um, that argue that Jesus died a martyr's death because the Jews of his day misunderstood him. They argue that Jesus never claimed to be God and could have escaped death by simply denying this confusion. But clearly, the confusion is theirs. Jesus repeatedly declared in this gospel that he was God in the flesh over and over again. In fact, the biblical teaching on the deity of Christ has been called by some, quote, the most distinctively Christian doctrine of all. In fact, there's a theologian by the name of Gresham Machen And he wrote a book, and he said, what is the deity of Christ, was the name of the book. And he said, the meaning of the term deity of Christ is clear. And here's his definition. And Machen was a tremendous theologian back in the early part of the the 20th century. But he said, the Christian believes that there is a personal God, creator, and ruler of the universe, a God who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. And when the Christian says that Jesus Christ is God, or when he says that he believes the deity of Christ, he means that the same person who is known to history as Jesus of Nazareth existed before he became man from all eternity as infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, second person 
of the Holy Trinity. And I think that is well said. He, before he became man, from all eternity, he is infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, second person of the Holy Trinity. And that's really been our argument in John chapter 10. In fact, look back at 1030 when Jesus said to the Jews there who were listening to him, I and the Father are one. In other words, it's a statement of his deity. And we mentioned a couple weeks ago that the one here, uh, when he mentions we are one, is not in what we would call the masculine form. If it was in the masculine form, it would mean that Jesus and the Father are one person. Obviously, that would destroy the doctrine of the Trinity. There is one God in three persons, but they are not just one person. He is not saying in that statement that I and the Father are one person. That would be what we would know as heresy. It would be the heresy of Sabellianism. In fact, we remember all the way back in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. And yet it's distinct from God the Father. The one here is not in masculine. It's in what we call the neuter form. In other words, what it means is that Jesus is declaring we are one in purpose. We are one in mission. We are one in goal. We are one in aim. In other words, they share the same will. They share the same purpose that Jesus and the Father are literally one in action. But the oneness that Jesus claims here is not only oneness in purpose. It goes beyond that, doesn't it? They are one in nature. They are one in essence. To be one with the Father, yet distinct from the Father, is a crystal clear claim of his deity. In fact, you remember in verse 24 there, the enemies ask him if he's the coming Messiah. And his response is far more than the fact that he's the Messiah, but that he's deity, that he's, that he's God in the flesh. In fact, it is this claim that stirs up the Pharisees into a rage. In fact, pick up the text in verse 31. He said there that the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. In other words, their response to that claim was to stone him. And so we come this morning to close out John chapter 10. And you remember from a couple of weeks ago, we close out, it sounds like it's it's a weird statement, but we close out his public ministry to people. He's with the crowds and he's with the people. And after this discourse in John 10, he removes himself for about three months to come back to Jerusalem in about three more months in John chapter 11 to raise Lazarus from the dead and to go into the last week of his life before the cross and even the resurrection. And so as we close out John chapter 10, you have one of the greatest statements in all of the word of God regarding his deity. And his deity revealed in scripture should drive us this morning to a response. In fact, the response that you're going to see in scripture is that some will desire to kill him. And at the end of the chapter, some will believe. And so as it is with the person of Christ, his deity creates both the 
division, it sends some that want to desire his death, and others will believe. And my question for you is, how will you respond this morning to his deity? Now, as we're looking at the argument from chapter 10, verse 22, all the way through 42, we've put this in a series of five sequences that reveal his deity to us. Five sequences. And we've looked at the first two sequences. First, the trap was set. Look back in verse 22. It says, at that time, it was the feast of dedication. It took place in Jerusalem. It was the feast of dedication. And they're setting a trap for him. And the trap they set for him in verse 24 is they want to say, would you answer this? Don't keep us in suspense. If you are the Christ or if you are the Messiah, it says, tell us plainly. And they're really setting a trap. And that becomes clear in the rest of the passage going forward. And that led secondly to the second sequence is The truth is proclaimed. They set a trap, and then he proclaims truth to them. And he proclaimed four truths to them. And we left off at that last truth on the security of the believer, that no one can snatch them out of my hand, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. And then he gives that wonderful statement in verse 30, I and the Father are one. The claim is an unmistakable, clear claim to his deity. And this is the message of the New Testament that he is God. And so they pick up stones. They're there at the temple ground. And sometimes there was construction going on at the temple. And as he's speaking in this discourse to them, they begin to physically pick up stones. The stones are in their hands as Jesus is in this discourse with them. And that leads, and we'll pick it up here, to the third sequence, okay? They set a trap, he proclaims the truth, and now the turmoil follows. They want to kill him. Now, you recognize that this is the fourth time in John's gospel that they've tried to kill him. They try to kill him in 518, after he says, I, before Abraham was, I was born in 859. They try to kill him there. They, kill, they, they seek to kill him in chapter 7, verse 1, and here again in 1031. Now, they're trying to kill him, crystal clear here, because he claimed equality with God. And, of course, that is exactly what he claimed. And so this is an amazing scene. It's at the Feast of Dedication. It's at what the Jewish people would call Hanukkah, even going on right now. And they were celebrating that feast and their deliverance from the wicked ruler, Antiochus. Judas Maccabees led that revolt. And as they're in that festival and in that time, they are standing with stones and they're ready to kill the one who is offering them life. You know, it's interesting that it says there in 31, they picked up stones to stone him. Only the Romans could actually uh, kill someone or had the authority over someone in capital punishment cases. So this is more likely a mob rage. You say, well, how does he respond to that? Well, look at the text in verse 32. Jesus answered them and he responds here. He says, I've shown you many good works from the father. For which of them are you going to stone me? In other words, he inquires of them. They pick up stones and he responds and he says, which of the good works are you going to stone me? And he uses that phrase, 
good works, and it's the word kalos, and we've seen that before. These works that Christ did were excellent. They were beautiful. They were good, if you will. And these works should have provoked awe in them. They should have provoked wonder in them. They should have provoked praise in them and not anger. Now, in fact, look back in chapter 10 and verse 25. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. He said, the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. In other words, these are works that come from the Father. He is the source. His works, the works that Christ does, display God the Father. In fact, look back in chapter 5 just for a moment. Let me show you this. These works that we've been examining all through John's gospel. But in chapter 5, after he performed a miracle there, claimed equality with God, look at 519. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only, only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these he will show him, so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life life to whom he will. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. In other words, everything he does is flowing through his relationship with his father. Look down at chapter 5 in verse 36. Here he said there, the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. That would be John the Baptist. For the works that the father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the father has sent me. In other words, all these works were tangible proof of his deity. In fact, look back in John chapter 10, and I just want to draw attention to that phrase there in verse 32. He says, I have shown you, he says, many good works. In other words, I've shown you lots of good works. And he asked him this question, for which one of these good works do you stone me? And again, the language itself in the Greek language is they had stones in their hands ready to hurl at him. And then the turmoil continues. Would you look at verse 33? The Jews answered him, oh, they say, it is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. They tell Jesus in this turmoil of this sequence, you're only a man. I mean, now we would understand it's true that he was a man. He was born as a man. He was, as we would say, fully human. But they said, but you make yourself out to be God. We are stoning you, not for your works, but we're stoning you because you make yourself out to be God. And that is blasphemy. Now, technically, if you're just looking at it from the book of Leviticus, in, verse, in chapter 24, verse 16, it says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord, 
shall surely be put to death. And it says in 24, 16, all the congregation shall stone him. So for them, it seemed like they were carrying out a righteous duty to stone him. But here they say, it's not for your works, it's for you stating to be God. That's blasphemy. What exactly is blasphemy? I think the great church father, John Calvin, said that there are two kinds of blasphemy in the scripture, and at least according to the Jewish people. One is that when God is robbed of his due honor, that's blasphemy. This other is when anything unworthy to his nature is ascribed to the character of God. And they argue that Christ is a blasphemer because as a mortal man, he's usurping God's divine honor. And when you do that, you commit blasphemy. And and when that happened, the Jewish nation used to stone people. In fact, stoning back in the Old Testament was a means of punishment for certain crimes. You can go back and trace this theme in the scripture. They would stone people, according to Leviticus 20, for witchcraft. They would stone, according to Leviticus 20, verse 2, if they sacrificed children unto a false god. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, if they served other gods, they would stone people. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, they would stone people for immorality. They would stone people, according to Numbers 15, for Sabbath breaking. And I think important here, in Leviticus 24, they would stone people for the sin of blasphemy. So Jesus, in their minds, committed blasphemy by claiming to be God. But GCV, Jesus does not make himself God. He is what? God. And by referring to the many good works that come from the Father, Jesus is declaring to them, I'm not a blasphemer. Jesus was, in fact, God in the flesh, and he proves it. And it leads now to this fourth sequence, okay? And we'll call it the Scripture testifies. And it's, it's really an amazing passage. He, he's going to exonerate himself, if you will. He's going to prove his deity by this scripture. And it's a fascinating piece. Look at it in 34. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your lie, said you are gods? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scriptures cannot be broken, Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. Now you'll note there in verse 34, he said, is it not written in your law? The law is the entire Old Testament in this scripture. He says, is it not written in your Bible? Is it not written in your Old Testament? Is it not written in your law? And, and you say, well, what's written? Well, look at verse 34. I said, you are gods. And you'll notice that it's small g. Would you take your Bible? Let me show you this in Psalm. Okay, go to Psalm 82. I found this fascinating. Psalm 82. He's quoting from this. It's what we call there, as you turn to Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. Obviously, a psalm of Asaph or a psalm directly from God. 
Now, now look at this. He is pronouncing judgment by God on the rulers of Israel. In fact, you can read it with me. Look at it in 82.1. God has taken his place in the divine council. And then it says this, in the midst of the gods, small g, he holds judgment. Some translations say, in the midst of the rulers, he holds judgment. And he says, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? In other words, though they're small gods with a small g, they're, they're unjust. They're showing partiality, verse 2, to the wicked. And so here it says, give justice to the weak and to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. And then he says of these rulers, they have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. And now this, I said... You are God's sons of the Most High, he said, all of you. Now, now what is he talking about here? I mean, you can read that in verse 6 in the ESV. I said, you are God's sons of the Most High, all of you. What's going on in this text? Well, the expression here, back in verse 1, refers to Israel's judges who were called, in this case, gods. And you'll note it there, it's small g. And they were called gods because of the administration of justice was a divine prerogative delegated to these prophets, or in this case, to these spokesmen. And he says in the next verse in 82.7, they're going to die like all men, But sometimes these judges, as you can see right here in the Word of God, were called gods. Now, now look at verse 35. Go back, if you will, to to John chapter 10. Jesus is going to make a point here, and it's, it's it's fascinating what he says. He says in verse 35, by implication there, if he called them gods to whom the Word came, and the Scripture cannot be broken, okay? In other words, that phrase there, to whom the word of God came, was used myriads of times in the Old Testament in reference to those who speak or to those who act in God's name. In fact, that that phrase, to whom the word of God came, is found in many of the prophetic books like Hosea and even Joel. And even at times... These judges were instruments of God. They were agents of God. Of God. Now, the, the Bible says here in 1035 that the Scripture cannot be broken. In other words, the Scripture cannot be dismissed. The Scripture cannot be eliminated. We know from the New Testament, 2 Timothy 3.16, that all Scripture is what? inspired by God. It's breathed out by God. In the book of Peter, in 2 Peter 1, it says that these men who wrote the scripture were moved by the Holy Spirit. That scripture that you hold in your hand cannot be broken. The thought is it cannot be annulled. 
It cannot be dismissed. It cannot be eliminated. It could never be broken. It is inspired. It is infallible. It is authoritative. It is divine. Even in this case, where the passage is rather obscure. Now look what Jesus says in the argument back in 1036. It says there, if he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said, I am the son of God. Here's his point. If God called them these judges, and they were even wicked judges, but if he called them gods with a small g because they merely received the word or were even some kind of judge over people, then why do you say of him who is set apart and sent by the father that you are blaspheming because he claims oneness with the father? Here's Jesus' point. His point is that if these fallen judges can in some measure be called gods in Scripture, how much more is the claim appropriate for him who is the very Son of God? In other words, this is how the rabbis used to talk to each other. And the argument proceeds from the lesser to the greater. In other words, what he's saying here is the Word of God in written form at least had come to these prophets, at least had come to these judges. But Jesus, beloved, himself is the word of God. He's the word incarnate in his own being. And so Jesus here is not placing himself on the same level with men, but he's setting himself apart from them and distinguishing himself from them. These judges, beloved, were corrupt men. But Jesus, on the other hand, was sent by the Father into this world. The judges were sons of God in a very general sense, but Jesus, on the other hand, according to John 1.14, is God's only begotten Son. And so here's the, the argument, if you will. If gods could be applied to your corrupt rulers, then the perfect, sinless, righteous son of God who was sent by the Father, you should believe. In other words, I think that's the message today, even to you. If they're called gods and they're corrupt and partial and they weren't rescuing people and delivering people, then how much greater should you think of God's only begotten son that's been sent? In other words, you this morning, I don't know exactly where each of you are, you need to believe as well. Now, now look back at the text again in that phrase in verse 36. I think there may be something here. Do you say of him, verse 36, whom the Father, it says, consecrated? Stop there just for a second. It could be that he's making an allusion there. We're in the feast of dedication, are we not? They're in an eight-day celebration of Antiochus, delivering the Jewish people and delivering and consecrating the temple, if you will, from their oppressors of Antiochus. And so as they celebrate their human deliverer at the Feast of Dedication, commemorating the cleansing of the temple from Antiochus, 
they now remain in the dark that God has sent, that God has consecrated his son to save them. Here's just another case in the word of God where Jesus is not only the fulfillment of the Sabbath day, he's not only the fulfillment of the Passover, he's not only the fulfillment of the Feast of Tabernacles, but now he's claiming to be the fulfillment of the Festival of Dedication. Beloved, this couldn't be clear. He is God in the flesh. He's God in the flesh. So here as we celebrate Christmas, as we think about that child being born, it is the wonder of all wonders, is it not, that Jesus Christ took on flesh, that he being very eternal, unchangeable God, took on flesh, and here he is set apart and sent by God the Father. In fact, Jesus adds to his argument here. Look at it. The scripture testifies. Look at verse 37 and 38. He said, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, verse 38, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. In other words, believe the works. Jesus says, here is the evidence. And, and it's interesting that he says, believe the works and the The word is a command in the language. It's an imperative to believe. He told him, if you don't believe me, then believe the works. And he appeals to them. I'm struck by this because in the other part of this passage, we saw the sovereignty of God at work. But here is compassion again. He says, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. In other words, the works make it clear In fact, look over at John chapter 14, just for a moment. In John chapter 14, you remember there, as he goes into that section there in 1410, very similar. He says, do you not believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? He said, the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me or else believe on the account of the works themselves. So look back at John chapter 10. He's saying, even if you don't believe me, believe the power and the works and the miracles that are coming from God the Father. In fact, look what he says again in verse 38. This I found touching. He says in verse 38 that you may know and understand that the Father's in me and I am in the Father. He says that you may know and understand. Now, you're reading two different words that you may know and that you may understand, but in the original language, that verb to know is just used twice. In other words, it's the same word. Obviously, here we're reading that you may know and you may understand. You say, well, how do we look at that? Well, that first word for to know is an aorist. And it just, be, it just means this, that you may begin to know. That you may begin to know. And then that second word is in the present. And it means that you may keep on knowing. In other words, this is the heart of the Savior, beloved. He is going after people. Even though he said earlier, I know my sheep. They follow me and I know them. He says to a group of people one more time. One more time. Listen, if you don't believe me, I want you to put your faith in the works because the works are revealing 
God the Father, there is such a tenderness here. In fact, even though he's sovereign, there is a human responsibility here seen again, and he appeals to them. So listen, you may be around people even this Christmas season. You should be appealing to them. We don't know whom a sovereign God is going to save and redeem. But I find it interesting as he closes out his public ministry, his heart once again to the people who are trying to kill them is still compassionate and tender. He says, believe that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Obviously, that's the explanation of John chapter 10, 30. Now you look at all of this and you think, well, certainly they would believe on him, right? I mean, he's so tender, he's so compassionate. Well, look at the text in verse 39. Again, it says, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped, it says, from their hands. However wonderful to us, they seek to arrest him again. Now, before they wanted to kill him, and now it says they wanted to arrest him, and I think what they wanted to do is to arrest him to take him to a quick trial so that they could stone him for blasphemy. But once again, it says that he escapes. We know from John, or excuse me, from Luke 7.30, from Luke 8.20, that he escaped from their midst because his hour had not yet come. And so as they're ready to arrest him, there would be a question, is this, did he just slip out of their midst or is there a miracle here that he just makes himself incognito and leaves. Well, we certainly know that God is sovereign, but as they seek to kill him, as they seek now to arrest him, to take him to trial, he eludes them. You say, well, where did he go? Well, the next verse, look at it in verse 40. And this is just interesting to me. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John, that would be John the Baptist, had been baptizing at first, And there he remained. And this leads to the final sequence. The trust realized. The trust realized. He goes away again. So where does he go? Well, he crosses the Jordan. And he goes to the place where John had baptized at first. Baptized Jesus as well. And there he remained. And what's fascinating here is that that verse closes out and ties together the opening 10 chapters of John, but it signals a conclusion to this major section of John's gospel. Now, it says that he departs Jerusalem. You say, how long did he stay away? Well, as you look at chapter 11, you'll notice that he came back to raise Lazarus from the dead. And so he leaves Jerusalem to come back to it, but he's away probably about three months. But here, after they reject him, he slips out of their midst. He goes back to where he, as well as John the Baptist, first baptized. You say, where did he go? Well, if you look back to John chapter 128, he goes back to a city called Bethany is where he went. That was the city to where he began part of his public ministry and where John began his public ministry. And so now, as his public ministry closes, he goes back to him. Now, now look at verse 41. I think it's interesting. And it says, speaking of Christ, and many came to him, and they said, John did no sign, 
But everything that John said about this man was true. Now, so here's this picture. He comes back to Bethany, and many came to him. Came to who? Came to the person of Christ, and they said, John did no sign. So what's significant about that? I don't, you don't want to pull too much out of it, but you know that John the Baptist never performed one miracle. We went through that. He never performed a miracle, ever, that's recorded in the Scripture. In fact, you know and I know that he was not an apostle. You say, well, what did John do? Well, we know that John was the forerunner of Christ, but what John did was faithfully proclaim the truth of Jesus. In other words, his ministry, John the Baptist, bore fruit, and all he did was testify of the person of Christ. In fact, John said in 3.34, I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. In other words, he's the forerunner that was foretold in the Old Testament. He got on the scene, he laid his eyes on Christ, and he said, behold, the Lamb of God that what? Takes away the sins of the world. And so he performed no sign. Now, what's fascinating about this is Jesus said, if you don't believe me, believe the works. Then he leaves from that place in Jerusalem, goes to Bethany, and it clearly says there they came to him, and they remembered what John had said about this man, and what John said was true. In fact, just go back to John chapter 1 for a second. Let me just show you this. In John chapter 1, in verse 7, It's speaking there. There was a man in 1.6 sent from God whose name was John. Now, don't think of John the Apostle. That's John the Baptist. He came, verse 7, as a witness to, it says, or as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light, the true light, which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Now, this is just an encouragement today, I think, of the faithful witness that you might bear or that a preacher might bear, if you will, of fruit in God's timetable. He never performed a miracle. He never, if you will, wowed the crowds. He never was an instrument as an apostle was to verify the truth of God's scripture. But everything he said about Jesus became true. Now, look at the last verse left in John chapter 10. I think this is precious. It says, and many believed in him there. As he leaves Jerusalem, goes to Bethany, many came to faith in the person of Christ. And so you can't help but see this response. The person of Christ creates a division, but it also brings some to a decision. And my response and question to you is, how do you respond to his deity? How do you, this morning, respond to his deity? That is the ultimate question. And the ultimate question at Christmas for you young mothers is, are you raising your boys with this in mind? Are you raising your daughters with this in mind? Oh, listen, we can spend a lot of time putting the right gift under the tree. 
But the greatest question and the question of all questions is what will you do with the person of Christ? One woman said this. She said, I do not doubt that Jesus was a good man and did many wonderful things, but I will not accept the claim that he is God and I will not follow him. I think that's the sentiment of the day. Oh, there's many people today who would not challenge his works. They challenge his claim of being God in the flesh and they don't want to follow him. That's what one woman said. Listen, I'm saying to you this morning as you listen, you must, and I'm speaking directly to you by the Spirit of God, jettison your rebellion and commit yourself to him as a disciple of Christ. You are commanded in the scripture to believe on him. And my question for any of you sitting this morning is do you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ? His claim, his claim of deity, his claim of being sent and consecrated by God, his claim that he is God in the flesh, second person of the Trinity. And what's tender to me in this is he's making a final appeal to you, at least here in John chapter 10. So on the one hand, he's sovereign. My sheep know me and follow me. But on the other hand, he's commanding you to put your trust and belief in him. Boyce, the commentator said, this level of belief involves trust and action. It is the kind of faith we exercise when we step onto a bridge, believing that it will hold us up, or when we get into a boat, believing that it is seaworthy and will not go down. He said, this is saving faith. It is the kind of belief Christ calls for on the basis of who he is and what he has done and the words he has spoken. Very true. My question to you is, will you come to him? Will you believe on him as your savior? Listen, his claims, his character, his words, his works challenge you today as when they were first uttered and even written down. You must believe on him today. In fact, you must do so where you sit even right now. The purpose of John's gospel in 2031 is that you may believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is Christ, and that by believing you may have life on his name. I beg you today to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen, you, it doesn't matter about your parents, though, if they're in Christ, that's awesome. It doesn't matter about your grandparents, but you as you sit, you as you hear, you as you listen to the God's exposition, must put your hope and faith and trust in him. And here in verse 42, many believed in him there. Spurgeon wrote of this text, and I loved it. He said, the devil wants you to wait, for he knows that he can then come and steal away the good seed of the kingdom. But if the Lord should give you the grace to decide for him at once, if you were to believe on Jesus now, what joy would be among the angels and the spirit of just men made perfect? They would ring the bells of heaven and rejoice over lost ones found. What peace there would be in your own heart. What thankfulness and delight, Spurgeon said, there would be among the people of God when they heard of it. Have you placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? We have a wonderful Savior, don't we? And the, the thought of Scripture 
is that you must put your faith, your faith only in him. He is the only Savior.